Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. There's something about the islands here that touches people's souls. Hopefully we make an impact in the world that people will stop killing and culling sharks. It looked like snot and it smelled bad, but then let that put you off. It was good for you. <laughs> what else in the world? You're going to see the condor three meters right in front of you. No, absolutely. Mm, I'm not sure Talk if I want to see the out. condor three meters in front of me. So many things in our society that are throwaway and we see those things. Things on our beaches, on our coastlines. Has anyone ever pooped themselves? <laughs> Sometimes the Germans can come off as cold. Uh, I think it's important to remember what has happened, but also look forward to the into the future and, and be positive about it. And that's, I think, what Germans are. It offers travelers the opportunity to teach English to children and experience the Panamami... Oh, that's going to be... The... <laughs> Speaking of teaching yeah. English... <laughs> I've got to learn to speak it. <laughs> we were all told that you can't take a leak into the river. You can't <laughs> urinate into the river mm. because there's a parasite that will swim up your urine stream. Mm. Yeah, Phil, um, you... Uh... An idiot? <laughs> <laughs> it's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveller. Woohoo! What do you think of the new intro? Uh, I loved it. Very good. I like it. I love Johnny Magas's voice. I could listen I to him all day. We, we keep... Forgetting, we've got to have him in. We've got to talk about his travels and where he's from and everything. We will well. do that. We'll, we'll, do it. we'll pull him in soon. We have hinted in other po- podcasts that you will not believe what his nationality is based on his accent. We should start a competition. <laughs> Oscar style, give away a jet ski. Yeah, in fact, in this podcast, we're going to speak about a competition. But we're back in the studio to record episode 12. And we're ready. We've been to Italy, rather. We've been to Canada. We've been to Iceland. The list goes on. You can hear them all on iTunes. But where are we off to this time, Phil? Well, I'm excited about this one. I'm very interested in this as a destination. We're going to South Korea. Um, now, as we know, it's um, you know a bit of a troubled place at the moment. Mm-hmm. The Korean War in the 50s, everybody knows about the, I have to say it with the American accent, the DMZ, doesn't quite sound the same as DMZ, demilitarised zone that's uh, where they basically caused a ceasefire. And as we're going to find out, there's you know some families have been split up by yep. that line and still haven't got back together. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's full of high-rises to South Korea. In the Seoul area alone, 25 million residents. Wow. <laughs> Is that, that is, a, did you know that? No, I, I didn't know. Have I delivered you like almost yeah, a quiz question? That's it. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> so who is on the show? Well, Ariane runs a travel blog. It's called seeyousoon.ca with a niche in adventure activities and cultural experiences. She's lived in South Korea and she does say, Phil, it's so much more than neon lights and K-pop music. Do you like the sound of a 20-month honeymoon? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Oh, come on, correct answer. <laughs> not, at, not at my age. I'm not quite sure I can manage. <laughs> well, these newlyweds, Tim and Sarah, loved the idea. We caught up with them after they visited South Korea, including the demilitarised zone, uh, and they're on this 20-month honeymoon. We'll ask the question, why? Would you wait 67 years to see your wife? No, no. Oh, God, family members. Can you have a bit of a think? No, no, I wouldn't wait that long. I think that's terrible, having to wait so long to see family members. Terrible. With North and South Korea divided after the war in 1953, we speak with a journalist about families divided, and it's almost literally by uh, a line in the sand, isn't it? Yeah. Plus, getting your money's worth out of around-the-world ticket travel news, and yep, I'm sorry, I've kind of ruined it for you, a quiz question, but <laughs> it, it's your moment. All right, here we go. Uh, when you're driving overseas, two-thirds of the world drives on the right-hand side. 
almost all the countries where they drive on the left are former British colonies or they've got a massive British influence. But there are two Asian nations which drive on the left despite no British influence. Can you name them? Two very big Asian countries. Ooh, I won't have a stab at it now, but we'll find out at the end of the episode. Erian is a travel writer, a videographer and a photographer from Toronto, and she is also a World Nomads contributor. In fact, she wrote an article for us on South Korea, and it was about South Korea off the beaten track. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So there's much more to Korea than cities and neon lights and K-pop music? Oh, absolutely. I mean, those are probably the three main things that, that people uh, will love about it, but there's so much more to the country. It's it's quite uh, uh, diverse in what it offers for travellers, tourists, as well as people uh, who call it their new home, especially expats. There's a huge expat community there. That's actually uh, what I was doing there as well. I lived there for two years, uh, taught English at a all-boys semi-private school and uh, it was a, a really fascinating interesting uh, and very enjoyable experience and that was in Seoul that was in the capital actually no I was in a really small town it's called Jechon um, it's almost pretty much smack dab right in the middle of the country um, and at first when I moved there I was like where did I go <laughs> Um, coming from Toronto, being a big city to a really small town was an adjustment. But I actually, uh, about six months into it, I really enjoyed being in a smaller town and being able to go up to Seoul every few weeks to kind of have that big city experience. But uh, being in a small town really forced me to have to learn a bit of the language, to, to really get to know the culture, and uh, really just to dive headfirst in, in, into uh, living in Korea. Well, some of the links in the article that you wrote include eating like a local in South Korea. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so uh, Korea's food is really, really fantastic. And the biggest thing that we all know is Korean barbecue. Um, but that's just only one sort of aspect of it. Um, Koreans love to eat depending on the season, um, depending on the climate that's happening outside. So whether it's the monsoon rainy season, they have foods that they'll eat then versus in the cold winter months, they'll have different foods. Um, if you're pregnant, they, they will tell you to eat certain things. And if you're a man that maybe wants to get somebody pregnant, there's also foods that they encourage uh, encourage you to have that will help you in that department as well. Uh, go on. What do <laughs> you yeah, eat? What, what do you, what do you eat? <laughs> well, they call like man strength. So um, uh, for... <laughs> no, please tell me it's beer because then, you know, I'm okay. <laughs> well, that helps. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but... There, there are different, uh, I guess, foods, and, and uh, to be honest, I can't remember because okay. obviously that wasn't quite my department. But uh, <laughs> that's tell what you what, we'll, we'll look it up and we'll add it to the show notes. We'll do that. We'll find we out go. what, what yeah. you need for man strength. I'm, look, I'm looking forward to googling that. Yeah. Also, <laughs> another of your links is hiking in South Korea. So hiking is, I, I'd say, probably uh, the most popular pastime that Koreans do. Uh, every weekend, you will see them in full hiking garb, <laughs> taking on some new trail or some new mountain. Um, Korea itself is very mountainous, so there are 
endless options of trails uh, from, you know, beginner levels to intermediate and advanced level trails. Um, there's a lot just right in Seoul itself, um, which is not usual for many big capital cities to have something um, so so adventurous right in the city center. You don't have to drive. You can take public transit to get there. Um, but uh, uh, for people who really enjoy hiking, it's uh, it's really just a fantastic destination for that. Are you, are you talking about um, what sort of grade of hike? Are we talking about a you know a good stroll or up to something really you know super difficult? Uh, both, like both uh, both ends of the spectrum. I'd say the the majority probably fall within intermediate to advanced level hiking. So using um, uh, hiking sticks, you know, to help distribute the weight, to make sure you've got proper hiking shoes for that, um, and to be packing snacks and uh, you know ample amounts of water for the trail. Um, the really the cool thing about Koreans is that they turn their hiking into uh, excuses to picnic and to drink while they're, <laughs> while they're hiking. And you'll regularly see them stopped um, uh, just on the side of the trail and almost creating like a full sit-down barbecue meal. And somehow they pack it all up and they carry it with them. Um, but don't be surprised if, if you're taken to the trails and they invite you to join. And, and I highly recommend that you do because that's where you get the really cool um, experiences being in the country. So Koreans like to party. What's it like to party with a, with a, a- South Korean. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, you've got um, uh, you got a lot of energy because they will go until the sun comes up. Um, soju is the drink of choice when you're out. Um, it's about twenty percent um, alcohol, and it's it's pretty much like vodka, but it's distilled from rice and. It, things will usually start at a restaurant and the way that they like to start their party is is with food but then with soju and generally what they like to do if you're in a group like a big group of people um minimum one bottle of soju per person has to be consumed when you're when you're out um, um, having uh, having a meal, and then it will progress to uh, maybe you'll go to Norebang uh, for uh, singing karaoke, which you know a lot more drinking is involved. Then uh, maybe you'll go to some of the bars and continue on. And it's just it's it's they like to call it like. Um, keeping the atmosphere or keeping sort of the the vibe and if things are going really great you're not supposed to leave like you don't want to break the atmosphere that they've created and sometimes that means you're going until the sun comes up they work hard and they party hard if we slow it down a little buddhism has been introduced to uh, south korea and influences the culture what Mm -hmm. sort of temples and things can you visit and what's the etiquette ah great question um uh, the te- temples are found all over the country. Um, predominantly, actually, one great area to go to is, is Gyeongju. It's the old capital city um, in Korea. There's a lot, a lot of history there. And uh, there you'll find one of the oldest temples in Korea. It's called Bulguksa. Um, and uh, it's a great spot to um, see uh, monks actually uh, practicing, um, as well as um uh, sometimes they offer temple stays, which is also another popular activity to do, where you can stay overnight in temples and uh, learn more about Buddhism and the um, the traditions that that happen um, while you're at, while you're at a temple. Um, also, a really uh, a really cool temple that I got to visit often because it was close to where I lived was Gwinsa Temple. It's close to Danyang, and it has. Um, 
this incredible, incredible hall. It's five stories high, and it's the largest in Korea. So in terms of sheer size, it um, I think it's something like over 10,000 people can be in this one temple. Um, and uh, the, the architecture, if you're really into architecture, it's really fantastic and um, uh, makes for really fantastic photo opportunities. Plus, again, learning more about the culture. And, and I'm one who loves to learn about cultures firsthand and doing a temple stay or visiting the temples throughout Korea is is a great way to to learn more about that. Well, sounds like a visit to South Korea, we need to be, as we say in Australia, match fit. That's up for all the eating, up for all the drinking, up for all the hiking, and then maybe calm down with with a visit to a temple. Yes. (laughs) Yep. A link to Arian's blog will be in our show notes. Tim and Sarah, they're on a 20-month-long honeymoon. They're documenting it in their blog, Our 21st Century Odyssey. Let's check in and see if they've had a fight yet, Phil. (laughs) (laughs) And where did they get this idea? Well, we took a year off back in 2014 and did a year-long trip around the world. And uh, when we came back, we pretty much instantaneously knew that this was something that we wanted to do again. Uh, And thankfully, we work as consultants, and so it's fairly flexible for us with our jobs to take time off and then be able to come back um, when we want to and dive back into the same industry. And so is, is part of the aim to, to immerse yourself in the, in, the, in the culture of the countries that you're in? You're not just simply ticking boxes? That's right. That is definitely something that I make a personal point of sharing with others when we're talking about our trip is that travel shouldn't just be something where you have a checklist and you're just ticking off, you know, the seven wonders of the world or a certain number of countries. Um, but rather you should be pursuing experiences and um, immersing yourself within the culture. And so that's where we prioritize our planning is when we're looking at going to a place, we think about what do we want to learn there? What do we want to get out of it? What do we want to give when we're there? Um, and, and how can we, you know, be good examples of um, travelers around the world? Now, you've, you've heard of the honeymoon period? <laughs> yes. So at this point, have you had an argument? We get along really well. We do have little disagreements here or there for both, especially if we're both hungry or tired. We can get, um, like anyone, sometimes a little short. But by and large, we get along really well and we make a good team. And the other thing, too, when you're spending 20 months nonstop with someone being in a fight is very inconvenient. So uh, <laughs> if there's ever a disagreement, we both want to resolve it. Yeah. And Tim and I are good travelers together. He uh, is very easygoing. And I'm the one who tends to like to plan more and has done most of the itinerary planning and research into places. So it's really easy for me to be like, hey, Tim, do you want to do this today? And he's like, yeah, sure. And, you know, he'll pull up navigation on his phone and help get us there. And we have an agreement that um, if I do all the planning and the bookings, he'll do all the cooking and cleaning. So we've got a good uh, delegation of workload there. Excellent. Well, we chatted to a couple in our Iceland podcast. She revealed that her husband, his luggage is heavier than her luggage is after they leave <laughs> each destination, um, which just goes against what everyone thinks about, you know, women carrying lots of, of stuff in their luggage. What's the situation yeah. with you guys? So we each have a 30-liter uh, pack, like backpack, and then one uh, smaller size day pack that we're carrying. And so everything that we have for the trip fits into those two bags. 
You can follow Tim and Sarah's 20-month honeymoon with their blog, Our 21st Century Odyssey, and we'll have links to it in our show notes, including their itinerary from South Korea, where they also visited the demilitarised zone. It fascinates me, the DMZ, the pictures I see of it there. Um, Apparently you can go into one room where you are have a window on the other side and you're actually looking into North Korea and it's all soldiers everywhere. This will excite you, Phil. We've got some amazing photos from Sarah to share in our show notes. Fantastic. I, I can't wait to see them. I love the place. Well, we asked Sarah what it was like to visit the DMZ. It's absolutely weird that you can go there as a tourist and that's something that I was saying when we were in the bus on our way up there, you know, it's so weird that they let us do this. And then when we were there and we're actually in this conference room where the North and South meet jointly to have conversations. And part of that room is technically in North Korea and we're surrounded by, uh, by military guards from both sides. And it's like, why are they letting us here? This feels so strange. Um, it is, it is very odd that they let tourists there, but it's very eye opening into a place that some would consider, you know, the most hostile border on earth. And it was certainly the most unsettling experience that I've ever had as a traveler um, to be there and to know that, you know, just a few feet away is a place where the world operates in a completely different manner. And it's a place that, you know, as an American, I will very likely never get to go unless things change pretty dramatically. So there was very much this feeling of, you know, this is as close as I will ever get. Incredible. And as Sarah says, it's probably one of the most hostile borders in the world. We'll share those amazing pics we talked about just before she told us about the DMZ uh, in our show notes. And later in the episode, we'll catch up with a journo who wrote a recent article about families divided when North and South Korea split. Now, though, time to check in with our world nomads. Your English is good. Nice. Xin chào. Hello. Bye. And just like that, I'm in Hue, Vietnam. It's the former imperial capital and around 50 k's from the former DMZ or DMZ that once separated North and South Vietnam prior to the Vietnam War. In fact, Hue is the site of the Tet Offensive, which was one of the longest and bloodiest battles of the war. Now, we spent most of our time in a village called Tuan, Tuan, and while there are around six universities in Hue, if you come this way, just 20 minutes toward the East Vietnamese Sea or East Vietnam Sea, education's fairly low, so not a lot of English is spoken. Lots of hellos. So I was pretty interested to hear from those in the village that could speak English about why learning and practicing their English with travelers is important. My name's Tom. And where are you learning English? Mm, I learned it at my school and my aunt can speak English and uh, teach me. Yeah. My aunt lives in England and I want to uh, visit it, my, uh, my aunt home. I um, met at English uh, uh, a few years a few year ago. A teacher in a primary school. Primary school, yeah. Yeah, and her taught me and uh, and she taught me and I can speak English now. Okay, high five. Yeah. <laughs> Thank Where you. Where you live? We, uh, I live in Sydney, Australia. Yeah. Have you heard of Australia? I uh, have a relative. Yeah, relative. In Australia. Oh, do you? Yeah. 
Did they leave a long time ago? Uh, about 30 years old. 30 years ago they left? Yeah. Was that after the war? Yeah. So how long have you been learning English? Uh, two months, uh, two years. Two years? And why did you start learning English? Um, because I, I, I want to uh, have a, a communicate with travelers. Yes. Yeah. And would you like to travel yourself? Mm hmm. Maybe uh, Paris. Why? <laughs> Why Paris? Yeah, because it's, it's a country very uh, romantic and very beautiful. Find a girlfriend? Girlfriend? Marry? Yeah. In Paris? In Paris, oh, <laughs> if I can, <laughs> because very difficult, yeah. And you like people coming up and talking to you in English? Yes, to, I like. Yeah. To practice. Yeah, to practice. Yeah. Yeah. Anywhere? What other country or town would you like to visit? And uh, I think in uh, California. Oh. Yeah, because I have a cousin uh, studied there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. You have to save your dome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe I will stay a lot of money for my travel. <laughs> travel can be expensive, but with a little investigation, you can find a cheap flight. Ian Patterson runs a travel blog, has a background in the travel industry, and knows how to secure the lowest round-the-world air ticket. Yeah, well, um, this is a ticket that um, it's not really possible for people to to book or buy themselves. So um, I come from a travel industry background as a, as a travel consultant. I've helped uh, lots of people travel around the world, and um, consistently, I find that the best airfares that you can you can get to do that with the most cost efficient ones, the the ones that that open up. Um, as many destinations as possible are, are these kind of manually built fairs and um so so that's that's what the the article was about really so look so could anybody rock up to their travel agent and say i want this really super cheap round the world fair um if the travel agent has the you know the contract to do it or um has the the knowledge to build the the, the fair type then yeah i mean they could and uh you know your first port of call really would be to to, to speak to someone at a, at a travel agency about what they can do for you so you booked a, a year-long trip through uh it was Qantas, but you used a travel agent uh, I did, yeah. I used an independent travel agent based in uh, North London, and this was uh, way before I got into to working in the travel industry myself. And um, they, well, we had a bit of a chat. Um, they were a, a previous backpacker themselves, so they kind of understood um, the kind of thing I wanted to do, the, the kind of trip I wanted to do. And um, we put together an itinerary which we thought best matched my my budget and the places I wanted to go and, and, and see. Um, and, and that's kind of how I ended up going on the trip that I did. Yeah, come on, let's get into the nitty-gritty of it, right? So where did you go? And it's kind of complicated because if you miss one one leg, you blow the whole thing out of the water. So explain where you went and how crucial it was to hit those deadlines, hit those flights. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It is important to, to make sure you're there on time. Um, so for me, I flew to South America, first of all, um, landing into Panama. And, and I traveled over land and sea um, through South America um, and exited out of Chile. And that's, that's where I have my scare. Um, on the last night before 
heading over to New Zealand, which is the, the, the next destination to go to. The, the guy I was traveling with had a bit of a heavy night and a bit of a lion in the morning, and we nearly missed that flight. <laughs> um, and had we... Had we done so, uh, I'm afraid we would have uh, invalidated our whole ticket. So, oh. so it would have been a bit of a problem for us on the other side of the world. It would have been. So then you flew to New Zealand? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I flew to New Zealand and we spent about a month travelling around New Zealand. Uh, went on to, to Australia, your home country, uh, and spent some time on the east coast of Australia uh, before heading off to Asia. And that's where I, my, I finished up. My last destination was in Asia, um, traveling around Thailand before going back to the UK. How much cheaper you know, was it than doing individual flights? Back then, it was about 1,600 UK pounds, which is about two and a half thousand Aussie dollars. That's pretty um, good for around the world. Yeah, it's pretty good. And the quality air of airlines were really good as, as well. Um, you know, it wasn't low-cost airlines where you've got to pay extra for the bag and you're, you're squashed in with your knees around your chin. It was, it was good quality airlines, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think it was around 30%, 40% cheaper than if I pieced the tickets together myself. And was there a lot of planning involved by you as well, like deciding where you wanted to go? And were there any, um, and in that planning, were there some places where you wanted to go, but it wasn't possible to do it on this ticket? Hey, Phil, all travels are all travelers are dreamers. Yeah, um, it took me ages to pin down that route, and um, I think my my travel guy was. Uh, very patient with me in, in, in piecing that itinerary together, um, which, you know, it took took me about six months before I actually booked the thing. Um, but, you know, that's that's what it is. It's, you know, it's a trip of a lifetime and, and it takes a lot of planning. And uh, that's part of the reason that I wrote the, the guide that I did um, that uh, you guys have, have taken a look at, um, just to help people in those initial stages of, of planning around the world ticket um, so that they can get an idea of what works for you, what the routings are like, um, how much the costs are going to be um, before you take it to the next stage and, and make a booking. We'll have all the info you need to get your hands on those tickets in show notes. Thomas Mariska, though, is a journalist who wrote a story around the time of the Olympics in South Korea. Did you notice how my tone changed then? Because this is kind of a serious topic. Serious stuff. It is. He wrote this article for USA Today, and the title of which was How Three Days Turned Into 67 Years of Separation for These Koreans. And we asked him about that article. You know, it's something that came up during the uh, run-up to the Olympics when North and South Korea had their first uh, sit-down for, you know, a couple of years in, in the anticipation of the Olympics. And, you know, it's something that the South had brought up as uh, wanting to sort of uh, start having these family reunions <coughs> again, excuse me, which um, they've only had a handful of in the past. You know, looking into it, um, you know, I learned that, yeah, there's there's really hundreds of thousands of families that had been separated during the war. I don't know. It's not something you normally think of as a consequence of a war. I mean, the, the, you know, there's the obvious separation of the country and you see North Korea setting off missiles and doing nuclear tests. But, you know, you realize there's actually so many people whose lives have been affected in this deep way, you know, losing contact with mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters. Uh, I spoke with the Red Cross in South Korea who they kind of administer this, you know, very limited family reunion program that's that's been happening since 2000. Um, almost all of them are over are over 70, and you know, even the like more than 60 percent I think are over 80. There's something like 60,000 p- 
people or 59,000 people that are on the the list here in South Korea that want to have reunions with their family members in the north if it's possible but that that list has already shrunk from like 130,000 I mean how does this separation this division of families how does that drive the psyche of Koreans and the South Koreans that you've met this must be I mean this is heartbreaking stuff it is heartbreaking. I mean, yeah, you know, there's something that, you know, talking to the people, I spoke to a few people for this article. And, you know, I think in some ways, it's the the time has been so long. And also, there's something in, uh, you know, maybe about people from from that generation that are a little more reticent to talk about their feelings, kind of. Um, and, you know, even within, I think, some Asian cultures, it's not as much of a thing to kind of express how you you feel or your you know your sort of hidden personal pain or something like that but um you know once you start to speak to them and dig in a little bit uh you know you it's it's quite obvious to see that it's left this just this hole in people's lives tell us about the man that you spoke to the 87 year old uh yeah his name was uh ro he kwan and um he had been living in Kaesong, which is actually on the, the board, right on the border of North and South Korea. At that time, during the war, it was on the south side, but when the lines were redrawn at the end of the war, it's been on the north ever since. But um, he was living there with uh, his mother and a couple of brothers and was kind of like a student soldier, he described to me, you know, not really fully in the army, but uh, I guess training. And uh, his commanding officer told him, you know, okay, take three days worth of supplies we're making this strategic retreat which um turned out to be the last time he saw his family and is the red cross doing the majority of the legwork in trying to um help those people that have been separated yeah um they they've worked on this program for i think this agreement was struck sometime in the 90s between the red cross and south korea and they do have a counterpart in north korea so i think you know to make it less of a political nation to nation kind of thing you know it's administered through them so they're the ones who maintain this database of families who want to participate i mean not every family wants to you know it's really kind of the south is ready to go at any second you know it's really the north that has been very very hesitant to um you know to work with them you know except for these periods you know north and south relations kind of are this roller coaster and there's a lot of times when there's just you know almost no contact so They've had uh, 20 family reunions since 2000, <clears throat> and almost all of them, I think, take place in North Korea. And it's kind of like 100 families, members on each side get to meet for three days, um, you know, a number of sessions over three days. And most of it is is still kind of monitored. There's North Korean uh, minders there, and I think they get like one personal meeting in a hotel room. Um but yeah, so it's the Red Cross that that handles uh, handles the logistics of it. Have you heard that Kim Jong Un invented the hamburger and is the fastest runner in the world? <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard all those crazy stories? Sure. Well, his father uh, Kim Jong Il was supposed to have scored like nineteen holes in one the first time he ever golfed. And, That's right. Uh, yeah. There's there's kind of a, a, you know, an information gap between North Korea and the, the rest of the world. Although, interestingly, and this is some other stuff that I've covered, if you talk to North Korean refugees that have made it to the South, a lot of them say that, you know, there's more and more information is making its way into North Korea just in the form of 
Um, some people on the border areas like with China can pick up TV signals and other people smuggle in on just little like USB sticks, Korean, South Korean pop music, soap oh, operas, no. stuff like that. No, they put right. up with Gangnam style. <laughs> you know, but for them, this is this is like a window to the world for them. And, you know, it's actually you talk to some especially like younger North Koreans who have escaped um, and are living in South Korea now, you know, a lot of them say that this a lot, is a lot of, of them have heard gangnam style and have gone back you know? <laughs> <laughs> they love their k-pop they oh, love know, it they love it yeah it's just or you know imagine like the tv shows they see the lives that south koreans live on these like uh you know these soap opera type shows and um you know they see the cars they drive just their houses and stuff what they wear and you know the north koreans watching this realize hey you know, our leaders are telling us South Korea is this hellhole, you know, and we're the best country in the world. But I can see with my eyes that, you know, <laughs> that's not the case. So it it actually kind of helps to bridge that disconnect between, you know, reality and the sort of fantasy that North Korea is trying to weave. And a lot of people think, you know, this may be the most powerful weapon, you know, to, to force change in North Korea, not so much missile strikes, but uh, just information, you know. Well, a very insightful yeah. chat, Thomas, and we're going to have to finish the podcast up with a little bit of Gangnam Style. Really appreciate <laughs> chatting to you, and we will have a link to that article you wrote in show notes. Oh, fantastic. Okay, great. Well, I really appreciate it, and uh, good luck with everything. What travel news have you got for us in this episode? Uh, well, I'm not sure if this is travel news or another quiz question, but who are Joseph Puag and Ijong Choi? That's the names used on two Brazilian passports issued in the 1990s and allegedly used by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and his father Kim Jong-il to attempt to obtain visas so they can visit Western countries. No word on whether they actually use them to get to Western countries, but you have to love a dictatorship where they ban everybody from travelling, but they can get themselves some Brazilian passports (laughs) to go and party in Rio. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Where do I feel like going this month? (laughs) All right. Meghan Markle has revealed how she avoids jet lag and despite being a affianced to a British royal kind of makes sense. The first thing she says she does when she gets on a plane is wipe down the surrounding area with hand sanitizer stuff. Makes perfect sense. You know, those remote controls and the buttons on the screens... Yeah, yeah. no, you've got to wipe them all down. Seriously, you know what, you're Megan? Bugs. No, you've got to toughen up a little bit. What, lick them? <laughs> no, not lick them, but seriously, have you ever got on a plane and wiped everything down? Yep. Okay, I stand corrected. Okay. <laughs> It's like I hose my kids down when they come back from, you know, playgroup as well. But, you know. The other thing she does, she coats the inside of her nostrils with a moisturising gel because she says dry and cracked skin will let the germs get in. Okay, can we just stop for a minute? Okay. So she's gone on the plane. It's yeah, first she's class. She's wiped it down. You'd assume yeah. that they would be in first class. They'd, yes. They'd wipe it down. Yeah. She wipes it down. Yeah. Then she sticks her fingers she up her nose. She puts some Vaseline up her nose, yeah. Then what does she do, Phil? Then she, she says she takes a high strain probiotic to uh, for gut health and then the, her words in this article hydrate hydrate like you're dying of thirst because even if you're not your body sure is hydrating i get you it is oh, a very a dr- it's a very dry atmosphere you've when you're in a plane you've right? got to drink there's a lot there's a lot of free champagne there's a lot of, <laughs> no you've got to drink water <laughs> and then she added that she never travels without a scarf or a cashmere blanket that feels like a hug all right stay with us while we wrap this episode up which we do with phil's quiz question uh, the answer of all the countries which drive on the left hand side two in asia without british influence 
Japan and Thailand. They drive on the left. Excellent. Well, that wraps up episode 12. Next, we're off to Indonesia, which includes a chat with a woman who's travelled to around the world, actually. This is your chat. Uh, the world's yep. solo. Totally on her own. A reminder to subscribe, rate, share on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Find us on Spotify and iHeartRadio and contact us by emailing podcast at worldnomads.com. Bye. Bye. Talk to you next time. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.